I want to share with you this morning this, the ninth message out of the Contending for the Faith series. The theme of this series has been, as I mentioned, contending for the faith. What do we mean by that? Uh, that phrase comes from the book of Jude where Jude writes to the people that he wrote to and said, I, I wanted to write to you about the common salvation that we share. He said, but I felt a sense of urgency to write to you that we need to contend for the faith. What is the faith? This is a little bit of a refresher on why we have discussed some of the subjects that we have discussed over the last nine months and what it is that God wants us to get uh, out of this. The faith is not necessarily your ability to believe. That is simply faith by itself. The faith is the embodiment of what we believe. That is our theological viewpoints. Did you know that whether or not you, you think of yourself as a theologian, you have theological viewpoints. Now, I trust that you have arrived at those viewpoints based on your study of Scripture, or at the very least, your belief in a, 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 a statement of faith of sorts, one that we will soon publish. We had one, uh, and a lot of times when our literature kind of got moved over and we shifted some things around, Certain things fall by the wayside. We want to be ever so clear what it is that we believe. And we have discussed a number of things over these past few months of what we believe and why we believe them. At the end of this, you can, for a small fee, get this, the whole series of CDs uh, for this entire series. There will be 12 messages uh, in this series. And some important things that I believe are essential to our Christianity and our Christian faith. And what it is that we believe, the faith is under attack, brothers and sisters. What you believe is under attack. And the very first one that we talked about was the inspired word of God. Did you know that there are those who look at the Bible as nothing more than myths, mythology? And, and it's, it's a tragedy that it has been reduced to, to that and there are people who stand in the pulpit and they proclaim what's written in here as though it's somehow just nothing but a good story. Brothers and sisters, the Bible lets us know let God be true and every man a liar. God's the one who got it right, not, not man. Uh, no matter how much study man will try to do, God is the one who has inspired this sacred text. And so our whole basis has been, we believe this is the inspired word of God. That what God has said in here, he is absolutely right. And we have to determine whether or not we're going to follow his word or not. So we swept through a number of subjects. I don't want to go through all of the ones that we went through. Uh, but we want to just deal with an important one today that I believe is under attack. And interestingly, over the last couple of weeks, as you know, I've tried to preach this message, but then got off onto something else. But then as I look back over those two messages, I've already preached. I've already preached some of these points to you. So I realize that this really has turned out to be a series of three messages on this one subject, the church and its mission. The church and its mission. If there is any belief of the church today that has become uh, and or has has come under attack, it is this concept that there is a church, a worldwide church, but more specifically, what has been most attacked has been the concept and the idea of a local church. This is where we often come under a situation where people say, I don't need to go to church. What do we need to go to church for? You know, as, as I mentioned last week, we turn on the TV. We've got Christian television. You know, you go on the Internet. You've got GodTube, and you've got, you know, um, uh, you've got people publishing their sermons on YouTube. You've got all kinds of things. You can sit there hours and hours on end. You could lose your job from just sitting home watching all the stuff, folks. 
And many people use that as an excuse. I don't need the church. Met a man a number of years ago, my pastor in Pagley and I, we did, we talked to him outside of the building that we had on Irving Park Road. And, and he was an individual, he'd walk up and down the street, he carried a big, big life application Bible. I have nothing against it, by the way. The life application Bible, but to him, that was his church. He didn't go to church. He said, I don't need to go to church. I've got the life application Bible. And this guy was as serious as he could be. I mean, he was just, he was just serious. This was, he says, I just, I stay home and I read and I read the study notes and that's all I need. Well, you're missing out on some very, very important things if all you do is stay home and read your Bible. We need the fellowship of the saints together. We need to come together as a body of believers. But I want to ask this question, and this is what we're going to deal with in the very beginning. What is the church? What is the church? Anytime you read in the New Testament, there is a word, a Greek word, that we translate church. And that word means this. It means it's actually a combination of two words, but the two together, the compound word in the Greek means called out from or called out ones. I mentioned this verse of scripture earlier where Peter says that you and I have been called out of darkness into this marvelous light. You and I have been called out of sin. God has proclaimed his message of salvation through Jesus Christ. And when you accepted Christ as your Savior, he called you out of a life of darkness and sin into this marvelous light in Christ. You have been called out, brothers and sisters. You need to know that God has placed his hand upon your life and he has said, I want you to be separate from the world. I don't want you to be like the world. I want you to be different. Peter also says this in his epistle. He lets us know that you and I are a holy priesthood, that we are a holy nation, that you and I have been called out for a particular reason. We're going to get into that reason in just a moment but first of all I want to deal with what the church is not what is it well let's look at what it is not first the word that is used for church in the New Testament never ever refers to a building never we call this a church I think I might have mentioned see I've, I've sort of half preached this message I think I might have mentioned this last week we look at this building, we say, well, there's, there's the church. I look at this building when you're in it and say, there's the church. This building by itself holds no, no sacred value other than we have dedicated this building for the specific purpose of being a place where the church meets together, the church known as Praise Tabernacle. This is where we come together and we fellowship together, but it is not the building, even when the idea of a building is remotely connected to the concept of a church or a body of believers, the terminology has nothing to do with the actual building. It has to do with people. You are the church. Turn over in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9. And then you can stay in 1 Corinthians because we're going to get over to chapter 12 in just a moment. To really see what the church is. But Paul says this. And, and he literally, he uses the word building. But he pegs the word building on people. Listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field God's building. See that? You are his building. Not this, this building that we're trying to take care of and we meet together. And I know it was a little chilly when you walked in here this morning. Like I said, we're at the time of the year. Well, I don't know whether to have the air conditioning on, the heat on, or nothing on. So I, I realized it was 61 degrees in here, which is quite balmy for me coming from northern Maine as I do. But not for you. Uh, so we, we had to turn the heat on. And, 
get the chill out of the air. This isn't the building. You are his building. The idea here is, and I love this whole picture, because you are a work in progress. I am a work in progress. He is working on us, but he is building us up. And brothers and sisters, you and I have a hand in that work and in that effort as well. We'll get to that in just a few moments. What else is the church not? It is not a denomination. Now, the early church didn't even know what denomination meant. Not even in the scripture. The word is not even there. Now, in our day and age, we know all about denominations. I am a part of, a member of, the Assemblies of God. This church is affiliated in it, it, the, the building itself, is connected to the independent Assemblies of God. Some of you have been raised and come from Baptist churches. Some of you come from Presbyterian churches. You have come from uh, uh, Lutheran churches. You have come from this church and that church and this group and that group. We've got so many denominations in this country, and many of them, unfortunately, feel as though they're it. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to let you know denominations was a creation of man not a creation of God. I realize that often denominations are formed around specific areas of belief and interpretation of scriptures that might be difficult and they might be hard and you might get somebody saying, well, I believe that what the author intends is this. Somebody else says, I believe what the author intends is something completely opposite. And so they often split over this idea. One forms one group, another forms another group. But I am so glad that God didn't say in the scripture... Now, here's the denomination you got to belong to. I am so glad that it's not even found in Scripture. You can't find it anywhere in the book. All you see is the church, which lets me know that maybe somewhere along the way, when somebody got it into their heads, they had to get denominations to be a part of this whole thing, that maybe we really missed the boat. I'm not against them. There is reason for them. I'm just simply saying that don't think of one denomination or another, one particular group or another as it, as the church, because that's not it. It spans denominations. It goes beyond those boundaries and those borders that mankind has put up. Those denominations, brothers and sisters, are not the church. They're part of it. It's made up of individual members that are part of the church. But brothers and sisters, in the end, it's not just those in the assemblies of God that are going to heaven. That might be a shock to my brethren and sisters in in the assemblies, but that's true. It might be a group that might not necessarily believe as I do on the baptism in the Holy Spirit, but we're all going to heaven together. We're going to be in heaven, and God's going to straighten out all the missed theology once we get there. For now, we do our best to study the Scripture and rightly divide the word of truth. So the word church, it is not a building. It is not a denomination. So what is it? We've already mentioned this briefly. That anytime you see the word in the New Testament, you see it referring to people. And that is the most important thing because it is you and I that Christ came to die for. He went to the cross for you and for me, not for buildings. He went to the cross not for denominations and organizations and programs and ideas and all of those things that we sometimes hold so dear in our lives. Those are not the things that he died for. Brothers and sisters, can I tell you that the church is a testimony of the value of the soul because the church is made up of people. It's not made up of of ideas and thoughts and and all of these things that we get so caught up in and, and, you know, what group we belong to and what group we're a part of and, you know, what what kind of church do you have and how, you know, there are so many different flavors in the city. You can just be going around in circles the whole time. But in the end, brothers and sisters, it is people that he died for. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The church here is described as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
And I want to read a number of scriptures. We don't have time to talk about everything here. This, this passage is so rich and so important. We, we understand that this, uh, what Paul is talking about from chapter 12 all the way through to the end of chapter 14, he's discussing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But within there, there is, uh, along with his theme on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, it's not a separate thought. Paul didn't lose his train of thought. But as he is demonstrating the diversity of the gifts of the Spirit, he then demonstrates why there is a diversity in the gifts of the Spirit and how that diversity meets the needs of the congregation. And he starts by letting us know and telling us, starting at verse 7, he indicates to us that we are a church that is made up of different people. So therefore, we ought to have a unity in diversity, that though we come from different places, we come from different backgrounds, we look different from one another, though we sometimes act or think different from one another, the year is a unity that we must have in the body of Christ that is all centered around Jesus. Let me start reading. There's a lot to read here, and it is absolutely ever so important The Bible says this, now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given. Now I want you to see this. Uh, Let me get ahead of myself a little bit for the common good. For those who say, I don't need to go to church or to a local church. You will never be able to participate in the wonderful gifts of the Holy Spirit that are for the common good. The idea here is that we are joining together and the gifts of the Spirit are in operation so the body of Christ can be built up and you can be lifted up in in the church service together. So Paul goes on and he says this, to one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge, by means of the same Spirit to another faith, by the same Spirit to another gifts of healing, by that Spirit to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing of spirits, and to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. Now, We're not talking about the gifts of the Spirit, but you had to see verse 7. The idea is the common good. The Spirit of God moving in the body of Christ is for the building up of the body. It's so that you and I can walk out of here and say, I've been strengthened because of this meeting. Let's go on. The Bible says this, starting at verse 12. It says the body is a unit. One body. We look at ourselves in the mirror. Whatever you think when you look in the mirror, you know, I, I always picture in my mind, you know, the Fonz. Remember, remember uh, Happy Days, the show Happy Days? Any of you remember that, right? Remember when the Fonz would go to comb his hair? He'd pull out the comb. He'd look in the mirror, put the comb up to his hair and go, hey, and he'd put the comb back in his pocket like he was perfect. <laughs> like the whole unit. He just, he had the whole package. He was it. <laughs> we look in the mirror sometimes and we think, oh. Not so great, the unit, and working the way it used to. But nonetheless, Paul is taking a very common thing, our bodies, and he is about to teach us some very important spiritual lessons about the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. Let's go on. And he says this, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. This is important. You might be an individual part of the body, but you're not the whole thing. You're a part. You have a part to play. For we're all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we are, we're all given the one spirit to drink. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for that reason, uh, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. Now, Paul is taking the ridiculous to show us how sometimes spiritually we can get into a little bit of funkiness. I'm not, you know, I'm not a singer. 
So therefore, I, I, I'm, I'm not part of the body. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Because you are not that, you are something else. You have something else to give. I, let, let's go on. Otherwise, I'll spend all day in this passage. The Bible says this. It goes on and it says, verse 16, And if the ear should say, because I'm not, the, not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? <laughs> Picture that just for a second in your head. Just a big giant eyeball. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. You and I were not called to do the same thing. You and I are part of the body of Christ to add whatever differences we have. Now, just because you don't do and participate in one thing or another does not mean that you are not a part of this body and a part of the larger worldwide body of Christ. You don't ever think for a minute that because what you offer and what you do is not the same as somebody else that you are not a part. You are a part. What you do and what you give to the body of Christ and what you offer to the body of Christ may be absolutely unique to you that nobody else, at least in this local assembly, can stand up and say, I can help you with that because you might be the only one who has it. You offer something that is absolutely unique. Could you imagine? And this is one of the whole things that Paul is, is going to deal with in different places, that we all can't be teachers. We all can't do the same thing. If we all did the same thing, he even says in one part, we, if we all stood up and prophesied, what, what good is that going to do in the body? Brothers and sisters, you and I have something to offer in the body of Christ. Let's keep reading. The eye, verse 21, cannot say to the head, the hand, I don't need you. Now, here's another dynamic. It kind of flips. Here we have sort of an inferior kind of complex. You know, I'm not that, so I'm nothing. Now we've got the opposite, the prideful superior idea that we need to battle. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Well, I, you know, my eye sees this glass, but... My brain's got to tell the glass, I'm a little thirsty. Hand, reach out, grab the glass, take a drink of water, and satiate your thirst. The eye can't say to him, I don't need you. How's my eye going to pick up that glass? A really strong eye. Uh, not only that, he says, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Oh, your head needs your feet, by the way. It's your head that tells your feet to walk. But if, you're, if your feet refuse to go, if you don't need your feet, your brain is going to be hard-pressed to get anywhere. Your feet take you places. This is what Paul is saying. He goes on, he says, On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Check that out. For those of you who think you're the weak part of the body, guess what? You are indispensable. I feel weak. Great. You are so much a part of the body of Christ. We need you so badly. You have no idea how badly we need you. He goes on and he says, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. This is so important for us. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our, our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has combined the, the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern. Now, obviously, your hand is not concerned with your leg. He's now putting it into where we are as the body that we should have equal concern for each other if one part suffers every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. 
I, we don't have time to talk about all of this stuff, but this is so good. Such an important passage of Scripture, brothers and sisters. This lets us know that, that while you are an individual member of the body of Christ, you are absolutely important and indispensable. Don't think for a minute that just because you don't do this thing or that thing or that thing in the body of Christ and you're not up in front of people and you're not, you know, part of a teaching ministry or you're not part of a singing ministry or, you know, all of these things that often are in front of people. I want you to know that you are an important part of the body of Christ. In fact, you might be more important. Often, the work of the ministry does not necessarily get done behind the pulpit, at the drums, at the piano, the work of the ministry so often gets done throughout the week in the little things that we can offer to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are at, you are the body of Christ, brothers and sisters. You are the church. Now, why is the church important? It's, deport, it's important. We're not going to talk about every one of these things, but it is deport, important because of discipleship. The body of Christ is important for discipleship. It is through the church that we learn how to really be a follower of Christ. Say, I'm going to learn on my own. Then you're not learning the way that Jesus even called his disciples to learn. He called them together to learn. They followed him together. Jesus didn't go off. I realize he had three disciples that he would often pull aside. He would often take these three on special trips with him up to the Mount of Transfiguration and, and into the Garden of Gethsemane. There were three disciples that were especially close to him that would often go with him. But nonetheless, he would, he would not necessarily just go aside with one disciple and say, now let me teach you all that you need to know. He wouldn't go to another disciple, let me teach you all that you need to know. And he wouldn't go to another one and say, let me teach you all that you need to know. No, he got them together. He discipled them together. This is how discipleship happens. It happens, brothers and sisters. When we come together as a body of Christ, it is absolutely important for your growth as a, as a Christian to come to the house of God, to be in the presence of the Lord, to be with other believers and to get close together. Now, I know there is an important one-on-one -on -one type of discipleship that can occur, and I believe that we need to be a part of that. But not only that, we need to come together as a church. We need to be together for discipleship. We need to be together for fellowship. Now, I know immediately in your minds you thought of one thing, and what was it? Thank you very much, food. I'm all down with that. I'm, I'm good with that. Food is wonderful, and it's an important part of our fellowship. The Bible says that the disciples broke bread together. Did they not? Not just communion, but, you know, they hung out together. They, they, they got together. They shared meals together. We are a part of the body, and as the body, we need to fellowship with one another. Look, when you leave this place, we can have fellowships downstairs and, you know, I, we enjoy those times that we have together and there's going to be one coming up at some point. It's not in the bulletin, but we've got one, we got one in the back of our minds, believe me. And, you know, we, those are important times together that we have as a body of believers. But what about during the week? Sometimes we leave this building, we forget about each other. Don't do that. You need to fellowship with each other. A simple phone call. A text to let the person know you're, you're thinking about that. You're there. You're, you're with them. You're with them in this Christian life, in this Christian walk. Walk something to let them know that they are a part of something that is bigger than they are, and you're a part of something that is bigger than you are. You're a part of the church. Fellowship. Worship. How can we worship together in spirit and in truth unless we come together? Unless we're here together. We need to worship. Worship is so important. What we do at the beginning of the meeting is not to fill time. What we do at the beginning of the meeting through praise and worship is to, to open our hearts to the presence of the Lord, to let God in and, and, and exalt him and lift him up. And, and, and we know that the Bible lets us know and tells us that when we worship him in spirit and in truth, he is going to draw near to us. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And in, uh, G, uh, the, the psalmist said, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. When we come together and we experience wonderful times of praise and worship and we just begin to focus on the Lord, God can do things in your life that no sermon could ever do.
He can minister in your heart. He can change things in your life. He can work in your heart and in your life in a way that you could never believe. Maybe you walked into the building, you don't feel good. Maybe you feel down. Maybe you feel discouraged. But you walk in, you're sitting sitting next to somebody who is praising God with everything that is within them. But you happen to know that they're also going through a dark time. And you realize, you know what, I've got to focus on the Lord and begin to magnify the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that's a dynamic that we have When we come together. This is why it's important. It's important for evangelism. Jesus told his disciples in in the, the last part of the book of Matthew, he told them, he said, go out into all the world and preach the gospel, teaching them to obey all things, whatever I've commanded you, making disciples of all nations. I, I find it interesting, one commentator pointed this out, and I thought that's such a good thought, that Jesus did not tell his disciples to make converts. That's his job. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to draw them. The Holy Spirit is going to do that. We're out there to evangelize. Our job is to proclaim the message. Let the Holy Spirit do the work. And when they come in, then we begin to help discipling them and bringing them into the kingdom and getting them into the kingdom of God so that they live the rest of their lives serving Jesus Christ. Evangelism. And then the last one is growth. The church is important because we need it for our own personal growth. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 4. You know what? Let's turn over there. Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Literally, I am trying to pack a message that should take weeks into one day. And I've been doing that through this whole series. It's really been hard, as you have known you will find that if you go and if any of you have ventured out to the podcast, you'll notice that these particular messages are usually a a whole lot longer than the other ones are. Uh, And that's all right. Where are we going to go anyway, by the way? We start earlier. You're not as hungry, right? You just had breakfast. You're ready and raring to go. But we need the church. The church is important because of growth. Listen To Ephesians chapter 4, let me just start reading at verse, uh, let me start reading at verse 10. Now verse 11. The Bible says, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. To prepare, now here here is essentially the job description of of your pastor, right here. This is my job description. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ, now here it is, may be built up. That is, that we would grow. We need the church for growth. We need the church because it is here that we can be built up in our most holy faith. I realize Jude uses that phrase and he says praying in the Holy Ghost, building yourself up in your most holy faith. But it's also through the church and and Paul presents it here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12 that part of the role of the leadership of the church is to build up the body for the works of service or to prepare them for works of service so that the body can be built up. Brothers and sisters, we need to grow. We need to grow in every way as a body of believers. And I believe that as we give ourselves to prayer, give ourselves to the word, and realize that we are all part of the body of Christ, that we will begin to grow the way God wants us to grow. So the question is, do I really need the local church? Uh, I think I've already kind of established a little bit of that, but let me just kind of venture out into this a little bit. And I, I talked about this a little last week as well. But first of all, yes, you do need the local church. You need a local body of believers. If you've not anchored down to one place, I encourage you to do so. Be a part of it. Commit to it. Don't be a roving reporter. Don't be somebody who's just checking out the newest flavor down the block. That's not what God has designed for us to do. Go with me now to Matthew. Go over to Matthew Chapter 18, Matthew 18, and Jesus himself condones the idea of a local body of believers. In fact, 
<laughs> when you read through the book of Acts, you will find from time to time that there will, in reference to the church, there will be a local body that is referred to. In fact, you will also find that at the end of the book of Colossians, Paul says, now take this letter and take it and read it to the church in Laodicea. So Paul, in fact, the letter of Colossians, we have it to Colossians, it was also intended for the church, the local body of believers in the city of Laodicea. The cities were small enough at that point where they probably only had one body of believers and one local assembly, but nonetheless, local churches were vitally important. Now, Matthew chapter 18, and the Bible tells us this in verse 17. It says these words, and this is Jesus talking about the individual who has been confronted with something, uh, an offense, a sin against someone, and they have handled it the way that Jesus told them to. Now, Jesus is going to say, if this person refuses to repent, if this person refuses at this particular point when you have, you have confronted the individual alone and they refuse to repent of whatever sin they have sinned against you and then you take two or three witnesses with you and to confront the individual, they refuse to repent. Listen to what Jesus says. I wonder if our Christianity wouldn't be a little different if we really exercised it in this way. If he refuses to listen to them, now listen to what he says, tell it to the church. Now we understand the church is worldwide. Jesus didn't intend or think about a worldwide church at this point because how are you going to get the word out? <laughs> to every single member in the body of Christ all over the world, this is not what he intends. He is thinking about a local body of believers where these individuals reside. And the point is here not to shame this person. The point is to get them to repent and move on. But, and if he refuses to even, or listen even to the church, notice what Jesus said, treat him as you would a pagan or tax collector. Well, that's a pretty tall, tall order here. That sounds almost mean and uncompassionate or incompassionate. It sounds as if Jesus is talking about something that really is so harsh and so difficult. But the point is, the body of Christ cannot function properly unless it functions in unity. It's got to function in unity. I, you know, I can't have one leg going over there trying to go that way and the other leg trying to go this way. Can't happen. And in the body of Christ, we can often have that. This is where it's so important for us to be in unity and not in division with one another. If there is something divisive that is going on in the body of Christ, I'm here to let you know you gotta, you got to stamp it out immediately. Go to an individual. If there's something between the two of you, do what the Bible says. Go to that individual. If they have sinned against you. I realize we live in a day and age where it's all about our feelings. You know what, folks? On the other side of the coin, we got to get thicker feelings. we got to get thicker skin. You know, don't be offended at every little thing. Oh, they looked at me funny. You know, we sound like we're in third grade, for crying out loud. Believe me, I know third grade now. I have a third grader. It was even worse in first grade. Forget about it. You know, we, we, they, they hurt my feelings, you know. And in the body of Christ, we, we sometimes... You know, we think somebody looks at us funny and somebody looked at us wrong and, and we're all offended. I, you know, if you're offended, you need to get rid of your offense. It, look, if somebody didn't come up to you and say, listen, I think you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. <laughs> you know, I, I, maybe we ought to just step back for a second and not be so easily offended. Maybe what we ought to do, not hold a grudge, go to the individual and say, is, is everything okay? I want to make sure everything is okay between us because I sense something. And if I sense it wrong, I, I'm sorry and I don't want to. Brothers and sisters, we got to be so humble when we deal with other individuals in the church. So oftentimes we come up, and I'm getting way off track, but so often we come, we come and we just let them have it and we got it off our chest. Ooh, I feel better. What'd you leave your brother or sister there doing? How are they now? 
We have to be so humble and so sensitive and we cannot allow the enemy to get in. And the one way the enemy wants to get in the church is through attitudes and problems and through divisions and through strife. That is the one thing that will tear apart a body of believers. And brothers and sisters, there's too much work for us to do for us to allow the enemy in there to get in and bring division. There's too much to do. We need the body of Christ, absolutely, because Jesus condoned the idea of a local body. But also this, and we mentioned this verse of Scripture. I'm just going to take the time to read it again. You don't need to go there. But the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day... That is the great day, the day of judgment approaching. He says, let us not give up meeting together. We need the local church because you can't really encourage one another the way the writer of Hebrews tells us to if you're separate from one another. Did you know that this room this morning has such potential for being a room of encouragement? Did you know that in this meeting today before we even leave this building, and I'm getting ready to close with this last point in just a moment, but this, this room today has the potential for you to be such a blessing and such an encouragement to your brothers and sisters in Christ. The potential is there, but it won't be there if we stay away. And oftentimes people run into this. Well, you know what? I, I stayed away from church because I've got this problem or I've got that problem. And, you know, I just I didn't feel like going today. Well, let me tell you something. How can you really be encouraged sitting at home by yourself watching whatever nonsense you sort of turn on for the TV? How can you really be encouraged by anything that is in your own little world all by yourself? You're going to encourage yourself? You're going to be like David? I'm going to encourage myself in the Lord. You know what? David had to do that because everybody was against him at that moment. But there were times where David recognized he needed the body. He needed people around him who love God and serve God. And brothers and sisters, we need one another to encourage each other. All the more as we see the day approaching, as time is running out, we need somebody around us. And brothers and sisters, who better than those who are around you in the body of Christ? So I close with this question. Can the church really be defeated? Can the church be defeated? We live in the day and age of terrorism. We live in a time of great fear. And outside of the body of Christ, the fear is even greater. Can I encourage you in the body of Christ, those of you who love the Lord, do not be afraid. Don't fear what man can do to you. Because whatever man does, whatever man can do to you, you need to know that there is a judge of the earth that you will stand before one day. And if you have lived your life to please him, if you have been covered by the blood of Christ, brothers and sisters, you do not need to fear what man can do to you. David said, I don't fear what man can do to me. Jesus even said the very same thing. He said, don't fear those who can kill the body but fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to let you know that the church of Jesus Christ will never be defeated. The church of Jesus Christ, and I'm not talking about Praise Tabernacle now. I am talking about the church worldwide. It will never, ever be defeated. The answer is clearly no based on, are we still in Matthew by any chance? Where are we? Are you in Matthew with me? Go to Matthew 16. Go to Matthew 16. I preached on this, this verse of Scripture two weeks ago. I will build my church. But here it is. This is why <clears throat> the church will never be defeated. Jesus said that it would not be defeated. And here is what he said. Chapter 16, Matthew 16 and verse 18. On this rock. I will build my church. Who's going to build his church? Jesus. Can Jesus ever be defeated? 
Never. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. And here it is. And the gates of Hades or the gates of hell, the gates of death will not overcome it. You need to see that, brothers and sisters. The church of Jesus Christ will be victorious in the end. Why? Because he said, I am the builder. I am the one who said, I'm going to build my church. And there is no devil in hell. There is nothing that can come against the church of Jesus Christ that is going to knock it down. Brothers and sisters, we are not those who have been called to live in fear, but we have been called to a sound mind of power and of love. Brothers and sisters, God has called us to be men and women who will stand out in the world full of hatred, full of fear, full of terror, and to lift up the banner of the love of Jesus Christ. All the more, listen, love will win in the end because Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Not only that, the church can't be defeated either when believers work together in unity. Oh, the devil hates it. This is why the one thing that the devil wants to do in a church is bring division. You know, Abraham Lincoln is famous for saying it, but he didn't say it. He didn't originate it. Jesus did. A house divided against itself cannot stand. One of the greatest, greatest uh, uh, speeches ever given in history was given by Abraham Lincoln, and yet he borrowed from Jesus. And he said those words. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Brothers and sisters, in Praise Tabernacle, you might look and you may say, you know, this little church has so many deficiencies, so many problems. You might even look at the pastor and say, he's got trouble. <laughs> I'm not looking for pity. But if that's what you think, you need to pray. Rather than go, go around and talk, rather than go around and talk about your neighbor, talk about your, you know, your sister in Christ who just is annoying you to no end. Talk about your brother in Christ who just, you know, what's the matter with this guy? He just can't seem to get it all together. You know what God has called us to do? He's called us together to be in unity. And we can't do that when we're talking about one another. And if you want to talk about me, talk about me on your knees. Talk about me in prayer. Talk about me to God. Say, God, help the pastor. Help him, Lord. He's, he ain't old yet. And, Lord, he's got a lot to learn. So, Lord, teach him those things. And for the same thing for yourself, pray, Lord, help me. Help me to offer into the body of Christ something that will be of last and eternity. And something will be that will last for throughout the, the ages of time. Something that I can bless other people with. Lord, help us as a body of Christ to live together, to dwell together in unity because brothers and sisters, it is unity that the enemy hates. It is unity that he is trying to break up. It is unity, brothers and sisters, that the devil wants to bring down. But if you and I will refuse to bow to the enemy and stand our ground and say, no, we're going to stand hand in hand. We're going to stand arm in arm and we are going to work together we're going to pray together. We're going to sing together. We're going to worship together. And we're going to follow Christ together. There is no devil in hell who can ever, ever, ever win against a church like that. Let's stand to our feet and give God praise.